Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening, thanks for tuning in, thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, we are in the world of data and using behavioral data uh, in the world of e-commerce. And you guys are going to love this conversation. It applies to just about all of us, whether you're a shopper, whether you're uh, a company that offers um, products online or services online, you're just going to love this. Or if you're a data person or analytics person, or you're just an entrepreneur and you want to hear an amazing story, I promise you're going to love the conversation today. Um, on the po- on the podcast today is founder and CEO of Fan Player, uh, Simon Yinkin. Simon, it is so great having you on the podcast. Thanks, Justin. I, I really um, am I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. I am too. I um have I, I've had so much fun. I feel like I know you because I've had a chance <laughs> to do all this great homework on you. And we're actually doing Zoom today and got to like it's you know it's not always you get to see the guests and so it's so great that we're able to actually meet that way. Um, but listen, I, I I can't even wait to unpack your story here. Just for those that don't know, Fan Player and that's player without the e at the end. They really focus on behavioral personalization, which many of you are familiar with uh, for websites and e-commerce. That's the company, but there's so much more to the person uh, before we even get to the company. So, Simon, your background is fascinating. Um, You weren't always in this space, right? And you started in the law profession. So, share with us some of your background and how you even got into this world. Yeah, it's an interesting journey because uh, going back to my undergraduate uh, education at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, I did both a law and science degree and law seemed like an easier route into business than uh, following my science mathematics background. So I went to a quite a big law firm. It's currently called Herbert Smith Freehills, one of the actually one of the largest law firms in the world, I think. And I... Um, the one thing I liked in law is really understanding my client's business and really understanding the business problems, the business objectives, and how I could help people. And often, you know, after a while, giving people advice, which to me was often common sense, but, you know, very often the clients would just say, you know, love it, love the commerciality of it, but to me, it always related to really being interested in the business and how to apply a solution to you know the real world business problems. And then um, after a while, uh, I was actually I'd been a partner for ten years, um, fifteen years in a law firm, and started to get itchy feet. I couldn't. <laughs> really picture myself sitting in a corner office as a crusty old partner in a law firm for all those years and my grandmother was English. So I thought, well, you know, I'd like to, to move to London. In those days, the firm in Australia was called Freehills, didn't have the Herbert Smith um, connection. So there wasn't actually a, um, a London office then. 
So I actually applied to law firms to say, hey, um, I ended up getting three offers from big firms and I was um, pretty well committed to going to Clifford Chance, which had offered me, you know, quite a a good role. And uh, one of my big clients in those days was Reuters. Sure. um, And they were subsequently became Thomson Reuters and then uh, they're now Refinitive. But I was working for the head of Reuters in Asia who was based then in Hong Kong. And he then got promoted to CEO of the entire company. And I remember I was in London actually um, interviewing with some of the law firms and at the same time I was working on a big um, law case for the CEO of Reuters. So he asked to see me. I remember going into his office in Fleet Street and it was like this wood (laughs) panel office, old paintings, painting of the founder of Reuters, Julius Reuter, there on the wall thinking that he wanted to talk about the law case. I had my laptop there with me. Of (laughs) course. Right. And uh, then he just said, well, what what are you here for? I said, I'll actually um, um, interviewing with some law firms. I've got um, some offers uh, to come and work in London. And he said, oh, would you like to come and work for me at Reuters? And honestly... I had no interest in that, but I, w- but I wanted to be polite. And I said, oh, yes, that'd be great. <laughs> because I had this kind of snobbish view that if you're a partner in a big law firm, why would you go, want, go, want to go and work for a company? Right. I mean, come on. And, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Come on. But you've got to be polite. He was the CEO of this massive company. Sure. And so I said, yes, of course. In the meantime, I went back to Australia and I pretty much decided to take the Clifford Chance role. And, but the CEO Reuters put me in touch with the, the CFO who kept giving me better and better offers to go to, <laughs> to, uh, go to Reuters. To Reuters. Wow. And, and so I can actually remember going out to lunch with a partner of mine, Tony Coburn, um, in Melbourne. And I said, Tony, I don't know what to do. I've got the, look, I've got these three offers from London law firms. I think I pretty much decided on Clifford Chance, but Reuters offered me this. What do you, th- <laughs> what do you think? And he said, Simon. <laughs> got it from Reuters. If you Reuters offer, I will. <laughs> <laughs> and that pretty much decided me. And then I, I went and um, the role was gr- Group General Counsel, and it was like a massive business. And from day one, I remember arriving in London. The very first week I was over in New York because the, the business split between the US and the UK. It was very uh, US-centric. And I, so I spent a lot of time in New York. And a lot of my work was obviously building the global legal team, but really working closely with the chief executive and the executive directors of Reuters on the commercial business. And I was always involved in they massive legal disputes. They were pretty much all American. And even though I was a commercial um, lawyer, I was my job was to sort out all those big legal disputes, grow, you know, set up a proper legal department. But then also they were doing a lot of acquisitions. And I remember one time I was in London, it was um, pretty 
I don't know, about lunchtime and the executive director I work with said, Simon, uh, I'm, I'm going with Philip Wood. He was the, the deputy finance director to New York. We're negotiating an acquisition. We'd like you to come. I said, fine, sure. yeah, no problem, David. Right. And, and so he said, well, get your bags packed. We're going on the Concord tonight. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the Concord, yes. <laughs> so I said, fine, no problem. <laughs> so we literally got the Concord, flew to New York, and went straight to the hotel. We had like a private uh, meeting room arranged, and there just... Um, the executive director at Reuters, myself, the deputy finance director, and on the other side was the CEO of the company, which was called Technicron, but later became Tipico Software. Oh, very familiar. Banker, yep. And the CFO of Tipico. Wow. And, and in, the, in that dinner meeting, we negotiated the whole acquisition, and it was all about Reuters acquiring a company that was um, essentially providing a competing market data system for bank dealing rooms. So if you think back to how information systems first started, they were pretty much a terminal hardwired into a particular location. Absolutely. And as banks got bigger, they said, well, we don't want hardwired terminals. We want data feeds. And then so from Reuters' standpoint, if you didn't provide the data system or the data management system, or they, they called it a market data system, to actually manage the sources of data on the dealing room floor, then, and somebody else was doing that, then you weren't controlling how your data was displayed. And people would look at that in a bank like Salon Brothers or Citibank, and they'd say, oh, Reuters has got terrible data, you know, it's just... It's really bad because you were looking at some other market data system. So for Reuters, it was strategic. Technicron had a competing market data system to the Reuters platform. So we did the acquisition. That was in 1993. And then um, some two or three years later, the CEO of, of TIPCO, as it then was called, was saying to Reuters, look, there's a really big opportunity around the internet. We really should IPO this company. And from Reuters' standpoint, well, why would you want to do that? Because <laughs> you've bought a product that's strategic. Why would you want to IPO that product? Didn't make sense. So I actually came up with a way of, hey, why don't we cross split the tech, the create a new company, cross-license the technology, the new company can do the IPO. Reuters can keep the business they originally bought. And uh, believe it or not, that idea actually got, yeah, that sounds <laughs> reasonable. Good idea, Simon. Why, wow. why don't you go and make it happen? So I actually went across to Silicon Valley, worked with Larry Sonsini, Wilson Sonsini, worked with the CEO and CFO of TIPCO. We made that happen. And then after that, the CEO of TIPCO said, Simon, I'd like you to join the board of directors. Wow. So I said, thank you very much, Vivek. I'd like to join the board. <laughs> I joined the board of directors and I was on the board of Tipco for the three years leading up to the IPO on NASDAQ. I helped um, Tip Tipco in those days. We brought in pre-IPO Cisco and wow. um, 
Yahoo as shareholders prior to the IPO. And one of the things the CEO asked me to help with um, prior to the IPO was, was just decided that it would be a good thing strategically to uh, bring in a venture capital investor would help with the IPO. And so he said, Simon, um, look, I've lined up three VCs who are interested in investing. Would you mind talking to them? And it was like Jürgen Delal at Mayfield Farms, um, Don Valentine at Sequoia Capital, and Vinod Kostler at Kleiner Perkins. Small, small names in the space. <laughs> exactly. I didn't no. realize they were like three <laughs> the, of the, the most, biggest. <laughs> biggest, most iconic right. venture capital. I had no idea. I was just like, you know, working in London for Reuters. Right. Sure, I'll meet so with them. I don't know who they are. Sure, but I'll meet I can with do them. that. Yeah. No, no problem. <laughs> I remember meeting with uh, one of them, and I won't say who, and he said, Simon, <laughs> if you think we're going to come into TIBCO and pay the same valuation as Cisco did, you're mistaken. We're a venture capitalist. We had much more value than a strategic investor. We're not paying that valuation. And I said, fine. Nevertheless, I did get one of the, the VCs to invest, and we did get a good valuation, despite what I was told. And it turned out to be a great IPO. Totally. The, <laughs> the IPO was underwritten for $1.5 billion by Goldman and Morgan Stanley. Wow. At the, peak of, at the peak of the market, it went to $30 billion. And pretty much that decided me that in the meantime, I'd been sent by Reuters to go and move to Silicon Valley, help with the TIPCO IPO, run part of the business that Reuters was keeping, which they called TIPCO Finance. And from then on, you know, as far as I was concerned, um, I had started my journey into tech wow. and I was actually probably inspired by in getting into the business side by the fact that in running the legal side of the business, I had set out to recruit really good people into the legal team that I thought could go on into senior management and Reuters. Sure enough, one of the people I hired personally Tom Glosser ultimately became CEO of the company. And, wow. And, Unbelievable, and, Simon. And remains wow. a close friend. And another person I hired, Dem Wenick, who also went on to become an executive director at Reuters, uh, also a close friend. He um, then went on after Reuters, Thomson Reuters, to be CEO of, of eBay. So... Wow. Uh, <laughs> Pretty awesome so, um, track record, I would say. <laughs> so during that time, I was, I was uh, as Tom was starting his career uh, working for Reuters in Latin America, I was um, badgering Peter Joe, who was the uh, Reuters Peter. I think I'd, I'd like to move into the business, and finally he let me go and do the TIPCO role, and that was how I got into it. And then from then on... I was really um, enamored with startups. I remember living in Palo Alto around the time of the dot-com era and going around for a walk on Stanford University campus. And I was here right next to where I was standing, where I was walking around. I think my parents were there and my wife and kids. And there was a group of students being taken around by 
a current Stanford student, uh, when I say student, maybe they're freshers or people getting a tour of the university. And she said, well, I'm doing a startup. I, all my friends in the dorm are doing startups. You've got to do a startup. And I was going, <laughs> this, that is just so emblematic of what it was like in Silicon Valley. Right. Everybody was doing a startup. Yep. Everyone wanted to do a startup. So, That's right. I remember. I, was, I went to work for one of them that skyrocketed and imploded, but it was a great experience. It was. And I think, um, you know, from then on, I got into startup world. Tipco was a great success. I started doing angel investing as well. And one of the companies that I angel invested in right at the very beginning of that company, Aconex, um, started in 2000 when I first invested. And I remember I'd, I'd gone back to Australia. Um, we, the startup I did was Nexat. Uh, we sold it to an Australian listed company called ITNE. I did an earn out there that became Razor Risk Technologies. And after the earnout finished, my wife and I had come back on a trip from Sydney, Australia to back to Silicon Valley. And we actually um, met, I met up with my former head of engineering at Nexet and said, Rajiv, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm working at this company, Cirrus. It's pretty good fun, but don't you think we should do another startup? <laughs> and that <laughs> sure. was how Fanplay was born. Oh, no, you're kidding. And um, in, um, so we'd started Fanplayer and Lee Jasper, who's the CEO and founder of Aconex, um, was over in San Francisco Bay Area. And I said, oh, hey, g'day, Lee, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, we're talking to some investors. So I said, oh, maybe I can help. So he said, sure. So I came along and I attended all the investor meetings with Aconex, and we Hmm. had many investor meetings, West Coast and East Coast. And in that process, he said, oh, Simon, would you like to join the board of directors? So I said, sure. And I remember um, we ended up with eight term sheets and we ended up choosing Francisco Partners, which was a San Francisco-based private equity firm. And I think we raised about $57 million, Wow. also included some secondary. And at that point, the CEO and a lot of the Aconex team moved to the Bay Area and three years later, he said to me, oh, our chairman had to step down. Would you mind, <laughs> would you mind doing that? <laughs> would you wow. mind being chairman temporarily? So I said, sure. So I was chairman for three years. And um, around was really um, at the end of, of that time frame when we had always intended to take Aconex public on the NASDAQ, but... Um, it suddenly became apparent we could take it public in Australia several years earlier. Wow. And the Australian market had really emerged as a growing market for technology. And and what were you what was the company providing from a technology perspective? It was software as a service for collaboration in the construction field. Hmm, interesting. So if you're working on a large construction project or also a mining project, how would you most efficiently manage your 
project from a collaboration standpoint, and Aconex was the core system for doing that. Got it. So we um, ended up taking it public in Australia in 2014, and then um, I think it, it IPO'd at about 400 million Aussie um, market cap or thereabouts at the IPO, and um, we sold it about two years ago to Oracle, um, was an on-market takeover for $1.6 billion Aussie dollars. Wow, four so, times. Jeez. <laughs> Crazy. So that, that was a pretty good journey. And then during that time, that coincided with the start of FanPlayer. And uh, we've now got this amazing business in, in FanPlayer, which, as you said, is really all around enabling e-commerce by making behavioural, behavioural data actionable. Uh, which means that we really work with enterprise customers on their e-commerce strategies to really, how can they understand what their visitors are telling them about their wants and their intentions and how can you actually convert that using data to strategies and ways to actually do better online. And so if you think about, you know, well, Simon, how on earth do you, in your career, do you get from being a lawyer <laughs> right. to, to, you know, working with e-commerce companies? Um, and really, it's a story about data. So think back to my story about Reuters, where Reuters was using in the, their dealing room systems, uh, it's all about how do you actually best display and use data to best enable traders on a dealing room floor and all about data. So when we actually uh, came to found FanPlayer, which I did with Rajiv, who's the CTO at Nexat, and then Derek Edelman, who was a head of product at Tipco, we were all from a fintech background. And our thesis was that e-commerce is just emerging and even though can, even though um, Amazon had started around the time of the dot-com boom, still e-commerce was at a very early stage when we started FanPlayer. And we figured that most businesses really weren't maximising the use of data. Sure. And that if you use data and analytics and everything we'd learnt in financial services trading room systems, we could apply that to retail e-commerce to really help retailers do better online by using data. That was how we founded the company. That's interesting. Now, did you have any early customers that helped you guys get started in this space or was it idea first, go and sell idea to uh, to customers? And then what did the product development process look like? Yeah, great question. So one of the funny things about FanPlayer, which is probably typical of any startup, is that um, and you can actually guess it by looking at the name uh, that we actually started in e-commerce using gamification as a way of creating user engagement and essentially our core platform has continued from day one but we started out building onto the core platform offering some gamification and we actually had about 1,500 SMBs all using the platform, got great reviews, great feedback. Everyone loved it. And um, 
Then we analyzed the data. We found that the gamification didn't actually make the slightest difference. Wow. Interesting. Their performance. So we decided instead to focus on, we had so much data around users and much more than anyone ever collects, um, even to this day. And that data, we felt, told a story about the intentions of all visitors on a site. And we thought we could use that data to provide a better experience for those visitors. And ultimately, a better experience leads to better results for our clients who are the enterprise customers. And um, it's funny because, you know, with the name fan player, people often say, well, <laughs> it sounds like oh, a game. You, <laughs> right. You guys do gaming, right? Or gambling. Totally. And I said, well, you know, you explain no. <laughs> and we actually looked into changing the name a few years ago. And I actually even, we even bought an alternative domain name, which we still have, segmentation.com, because really the core of our platform is around the segmentation engine. Sure. And so I had this idea, let's change the name to segmentation.com. <laughs> I went out to all the my management team and said, hey, I've got this great domain name. Let's change the name. And they said, no. no <laughs> fan player is way more interesting. Like <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. So that's where it's made. It's quite funny. Now, there's a lot of... Um, this is a, a booming space right now, um, as is the e-commerce space, especially, gosh, the, the, in 2020. Um, but, I mean, it had already been growing and evolving in, in the world of retail and even the consumer product companies going direct to consumer. Um, there, what makes you guys unique? Like, is it the segmentation engine or is it other in terms of, like, what your place in the market? Yeah, another another great question. Thank you. So... It is the breadth of data and the segmentation engine that they would say really makes FanPlay unique. And it's, it's the, uh, the fact that we can use behavioural data to truly understand visitors' intentions, even when people are anonymous, and then use that data to provide a better experience. And... Going back to your question about the differentiation, so firstly, it's the depth of the data. So we literally capture and store and make available in real time for all of our uh, analytics, insights, segmentation and action, every mouse click, every movement, every nuance of every visitor on our client's sites. And that generates massive amounts of data that nobody else captures, um, not, not even any of our competitors to the same extent, and certainly none of our customers. And that gives you a perspective on really understanding behaviour and what those behaviours say about people's intentions that really nobody else has. And so it really means that and we started fo focusing first on retail e-commerce, that we can tell all our retail clients so much about the business that they don't otherwise know. They have data about, well, they know their customers, they have a CRM, they know they've got Google Analytics, they know 
uh, a certain amount, but they don't know half of the story of the data that we really capture and analyse to truly understand their visitors, what are their intentions, and how can you actually provide the best experience for every visitor. And if you think about all the recent changes to privacy laws, to laws around data security, GDPRs, the Californian privacy laws, the changes that have been made to ITP, making it harder to track people online, essentially the future is everyone's going to be anonymous. If you're not logged sure. in, you're anonymous. Got it. But for FanPlayer, we don't need to know people's identity because of the fact that we use behaviour to understand intention. We can map visitor behaviour to other similar cohorts and then for that visitor really understand why they're there, what products they're interested in, have they been there before, how many times, and really provide the best, most personalised experience. And what we found is that that is ultimately the secret to better performance of e-commerce sites because on average more than 50% of visitors to an e-commerce site go there for a reason and leave, often within two or three page views. And if you think about the fact that the average conversion rate is typically only 2 or 3% across all verticals, that's a massive number of visitors that are going and being frustrated, distracted and leaving. Totally. And if you can actually make those people stay longer, get more engaged, find what they're looking for, then you're definitely going to get better performance and more revenue for your customers. And that's that's really that's our secret sauce, and that's how we work. So I love that, and so important, and and great to have the differentiation. Um, what are keys to growth as you look, you know, out over the next six to twelve months for you guys? One of the keys we found to growth, and this has been true through COVID, is that our customers have pulled us in to other verticals. So when we started, and this story actually says a lot about the flexibility of our platform, we were purely focused on retail e-commerce. Sure. We, we never thought we were building something for airlines right, or railways right. or cruise companies or resorts or travel packages right. or telecommunication right. companies like Vodafone or Tim Mobile or car companies like GM or Fiat Chrysler or gaming companies or entertainment and streaming services or tech companies like Samsung or banks or insurance companies or even people providing B2B services like we actually have as one of our clients, the biggest B2B company in the food industry in Japan and, you know, $2 billion revenue company and love fan player. And it's all because you think about all those different verticals and how could you possibly go from something built for retailers or people selling fashion to all those other verticals is because what we've built is a data platform and the data platform focuses on visitor behavior and how can you understand people's intentions? How can you give them a better experience? How can you translate that 
to a better performance for your customers. And that's really how we have built the company. And because we have those other verticals, it's meant that, you know, in COVID, when retailers had to shut locations, we could use our data to drive shoppers to a physical location, drive them to curbside pickup, for example. Sure. It meant that when it became very hard for airlines or travel companies, we had other verticals like telcos, entertainment, energy, gaming that were starting to boom. So we actually were able to move into those verticals and really continue to grow our business. So that's one of the ways we've been able to grow in the COVID environment. That's very cool. Um, You have had a chance to, and and what an amazing and and fun business to grow, I'll call it. Um, And there's so much opportunity across industries. I I totally agree. And and industries that didn't think they were even going to need this capability or had it on their roadmap, quote unquote, in the next year or two or three, it's become like now. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, You've had a chance to start your own business. Um, You've had a chance to take, I mean, companies public. You've been part of a number of um, early stage companies, and we have a lot of those listeners on our podcast. Um, as you've worked with different founders and been a founder and whatnot, what what would be some coaching and advice that you offer to them? You know, give us two or three you know nuggets to be thinking about uh, for those that are either thinking of starting their own thing or even early stage. So for people that are thinking of starting their own thing, and I give this advice actually to, I've given it to fellow alumni from universities and school standpoint, even to family members (laughs) that that seriously have have asked me for advice (laughs) about startups and starting a company, uh, that one of the most important things really is doing it with the right type of founders, not just type of founders, but doing it with co-founders that really allow you to have the most appropriate team for your startup. So, for example, I had an alumni ask me for advice about an opportunity recently where they had from a business standpoint, put together quite an interesting opportunity, but they lacked co-founders in key areas. And I think, for example, if you don't have a co-founder that is going to be the CTO and personally writing the code, if you don't have somebody in your founding team that is good at selling and you don't have somebody that truly has the requisite domain expertise because very often startups are focused around a particular area or domain, then you're not going to really succeed. So that's one of the, I think for a very early startup, you have to have two or, I think you really have to have at least two or three co-founders, all passionate and driven about your startup but equally bringing together what you need from a domain 
expertise standpoint. Wow, I love um, that. In, in terms of the other parts of your question around lessons learned as startups get go from like an early idea to a later stage, one of the lessons I've learned is that investment capital is extremely valuable and the more money you raise, the more pressure you place on yourself as founder and your co-founders and all your employees and all your existing investors because all the investors are going to get paid back first. Right. Probably with preferences that extend, give them a guaranteed return. And so the more money you raise and spend, potentially the harder it's going to be for you as founders and even for your existing investors to actually make a decent return. Sure. So every cent you raise and spend, watch it and guard it carefully because it isn't, you're not playing with somebody else's money. You're, you're essentially, if you spend money and waste it, you're making it much harder for you and your employees and all your co-founders to make a decent return. Sure. It makes sense. And and I don't know that everyone understands that going into it, right? They think they got to go raise money and they don't understand the nuances of it unless they're part of a program where they get good coaching around that. I think it's important. I, I was talking to a former alumni this morning. I, I won't mention the name of the company, but pretty successful startup. And he was describing him coming on as the 20th or 30th person, they raised a big round of capital or big rounds of capital, went into hyper-growth mode, then COVID hit and they had to lay off a large number of people and really operate in a different environment. So, sure, I mean, you know, it's great to be an Uber or it's great to be a company like maybe Canva is a better example where you raise a lot of money, you can expand very quickly and you can, it's all about expanding. But I really still do believe that for most startups, even if you raise a large amount of capital, it's best not to spend it. Spend it wisely. (laughs) Don't burn that cash because you'll end up regretting it in many, many cases. Wow. Um, I am guessing you have a, a whole set of, of great ideas and coaching and, and lessons learned. And, um, we're going to have to get you back on down the road. I'd love for you to share yeah, even more stories, um, on that front. I, I know our listeners would appreciate uh-huh. it. And I can only imagine that we could basically get on the list, you know, talk about the right founders, talk about the right operating model, talk about revenue, talk about, I mean, like I, we could go down you could probably <laughs> list all of these amazing things you've learned, but but um, it is, yeah, it has been so great having you, um, Thank you on the podcast. I, it's so great hearing your story. Like I, I, you know, before we hit record, I was we were talking about. Do you want to talk more about the story or the company? And my guess is when people hit at the end of this podcast, you know, our listeners are going to say, "Man, it was the story. It was your, you know, the decisions and the and the path." And fan player, you know what I mean. And so I'm just so glad we were able to to cover that today. And I hope you'll you'll choose to come back on with us in a couple of weeks or months. Yeah, I'd love to because fan player are actually 
planning for an IPO. We're planning uh, to use my experience on the ASX, it's the Australian Stock Exchange, and, you know, you can't plan definitely, but we feel that we have a good chance of targeting 2022. And with all my experience, it does mean now that I can take the steps that really my executive management team wouldn't realise we need to take to but get set up done the RPO. It. Yeah, you've done so it before. We've done it before. So, for example, we've appointed auditors. We're about to get our first set of audited accounts for 2019. We've put in place standard policies you need as a public company, code of conduct, remuneration policy, audit committee charter. We're starting down the process now of recruiting non-executive directors that we'll need for the IPO. So I know what needs to be done and how what the market is looking for. And I know that we can work together as a team and really leverage that knowledge and experience to get a great outcome for us at FanPlayer. Sure. I love that. Oh, okay. We're going to have you come back and talk about that process because I think that would be fascinating. Just to, we could just unpack that process. It would be amazing. Um, all right. For those uh, wondering about FanPlayer, you can check out the company at FanPlayer.com, and it's F-A-N-P-L-A-Y-R. There's no E in there, so FanPlayer.com. Simon, it has been so great having you on the podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's great to meet you, and it's been a fun experience. Thank you. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional ContenderCast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.